morning, everyone. Good morning. We're going to worship together. If you're able, would you stand? Um, I was just reminded of this thought this morning of, um, I had heard in a, in a sermon and, and he was talking about how on this, this side of eternity, um, obviously when we go to heaven, everything is perfect. We're going to live in perfection. Um, we won't have sorrow, (laughs) but it was so cool. He was saying how there's, there's an offering of worship we can give here and now that we won't actually be able to give when we're in heaven because of sorrow, because of um, hardship. And and I just think that's such a beautiful thought that there's actually an offering of worship we can give right now that we won't, we won't be able to give ever again. And so um, just with that, I think as we enter into worshiping Jesus this morning, be reminded of that. And even like things going on in your own life or friends' lives um, that have just been hard, I think, think of how you can praise him through that. And that is actually such a beautiful offering of worship. So, Father, we come this morning um, not just willing, but desiring to give you praise that you are worthy of receiving. Lord, we come and we lay ourselves at your feet and we just say we are, we are, um, we want to be worshiped to you. We want to lay ourselves down. We want to be a sacrifice of worship to you, Lord. So let our our songs, our praises, out of joy, out of mourning, may it all be worshiped to you, God. May it be praised to your name, Jesus.
Let's just close our eyes for a moment. Would you just lift your hands up? This is just surrender to him. It's praise to him. Just lift them straight up as high as you can. Yes, God, we surrender to you. than reading words off the screen. God, we want to worship you. God, we want to praise you. We know that it's from our hearts that we worship you. If we don't get that yet, Lord, show us. God, come move us. Move our hearts, God. We want to worship you with everything we have, Lord. Everything we have, God, we want to give you praise. We want to give you honor. We want to give you glory, God. But I just ask that these words would connect with us. These, word, these words would not just be words that just come out of our mouths, Lord, but they'd be words that come from our hearts to praise you, to give you glory, because you are worthy, Lord. You are worthy, God. You are worthy, Lord. Lift our hands to you, God. We show you. We want to show you that we love you. We show you that we want to praise you, God, with everything.
can take a seat, say hello to someone around you. Uh, Thank you, Sophie. You know, there's a reason why we open our service with worship. I don't know about you, but when I came in this morning, my mind and my heart were certainly not focused on Jesus. They were focused on me, they were focused on the circumstances of the day, they were focused on all the to-dos or whatever has been done, Um, and something interesting happens as we worship. It's almost like the the lens of our heart begins to shift and the focus begins to shift off of ourselves and off of our kind of small world and shift back onto the one that it belongs to the one that is rightfully to be worshipped, our Lord and our God. And so I'm grateful uh, for all that come and lead us into that place because I know that right now my heart feels much more focused on Jesus, which is where it should be. Uh, Not just between 10 and 11.30 on a Sunday morning, by the way, but throughout the week. But sometimes we need this. We need this reminder. We need to help come together to refocus. Uh, Speaking of coming together to refocus and celebrate, We are two weeks away from Easter, which seems absolutely ridiculous that this year is going by as quickly as it is. Um, And so some of you got these when you came in. Some of you grabbed a stack of them last week. These are our invitations for Easter. Again, these are not for you. This is your invitation. Come and hang out with me on Sunday morning, Easter Sunday at either 9 or 11 o'clock. And to really prepare your heart for Easter week. I invite you to come with me on Friday night for our Good Friday service at 7 p.m. It will be family-friendly, but we will also have children's ministry across the street for those of you who would like to be actually able to focus as opposed to um, trying to wrangle your children, if they're anything like my children. That said, these invitations are for you to take and prayerfully say, God, who does this belong to? Who do I need to give this to? Now, let me put a little parameter on here. If you have people in your community that you really like to hang out, but they're already part of a different church community, please don't give this to them. They are already part of another community, and the last thing we need to do is try to pull them out of that community to be part of our community. They're already part of your community. So just love them and leave them and pray about who doesn't have a community to be a part of. That's who you give these to, your neighbors, your family members, your coworkers who do not have a place that they are regularly worshiping Jesus with a community of Christ followers. That's who I would encourage you to give these to, all right? Um, also, is a couple of ways of kind of continuing to nurture community here as COVID is kind of behind us, or, or, you know, for the most part, we are just kind of entering back into life. We want to do opportunities to be family together. So today, right after the service, 
over at Lions Park. And for those of you who haven't been there, it doesn't smell like urine anymore. It actually is beautiful and amazing and wonderful. Some of you know it as Airplane Park. They've done a phenomenal job of restoring that place to a place where we want to bring our kids. We're going to have a family picnic. And it, you don't even have to have kids to come and be family with us. Just come and hang out. Bring a meal with you. You can grab something on the way. And then just come and be with us from noon until whenever we get bored of being there. Next Saturday, ladies, this one is for you. Next Saturday at 8.30 across the street in the family room, you're going to have coffee and conversation. There will, be, there will be food. There will be time to be together just to share with one another what's going on in your lives and to pray for one another. It's wonderful. And then, guys, we are going to have our time at the end of the month on April 30th. So we have that coming forward to look forward to. With that, I'm going to shift gears, and I have a question that I need to ask you. And this is not a, typically, they're sometimes silly. This is not a silly question. If you were to die today, and you found yourself standing face-to-face with the living God, and he were to look you in the eyes and say, why should I allow you to spend eternity with me? What would you say? This isn't a hypothetical, by the way. This is not a hypothetical question because as we are going to see today, you and I and every other image bearer on this planet who has ever lived and who ever will live will one day stand before the living God and need to give an accounting for their life. And so considering today what we might say then is of utmost importance. And that's what we're going to look at today in the passage we're going to look at in Revelation. So I invite you to grab a Bible. If you didn't bring one with you, you have some in the seat backs in front of you. I'd encourage you to actually open a Bible, go analog version, even if you tend to go on your phone, because there's something about actually holding the scriptures in your hand and being able to look at it. And I promise you, we are only covering five verses today, so it probably won't feel all that overwhelming. Uh, not like drinking from a theological fire hose um, today. Last week, we got a chance to see how Jesus deals with the enemy once and for all, with Satan and the unholy trinity of the, the Antichrist and the, the false prophet. We got to see him deal with Satan, the one who has been the adversary of our father, seeking to thwart everything he's been trying to do and seeking to lead you and I and every other image bearer of God astray. We got to see how Jesus deals with them once and for all. He is held accountable for his actions, and it is good news that we saw last week. As scary as Judgment Day sounds, it's good news because it reminds us that regardless of how bad it gets in our world, regardless of how out of control it feels, there is coming a day where our enemy will be once and for all held accountable for his actions. Jesus wins, and that's good news. But Satan is not the only one that is held accountable for his actions. We are as well. And so in verse 11, we're going to read about our own judgment day, the day that we get to stand before the great white throne and give account for our lives. Let's read it beginning in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place in them. 
And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and, the, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Are you awake? (laughs) What this reminds us is that one day you and I, our children, our parents, everybody we know is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And there will be one final exam. (laughs) The outcome of which is pretty big. Does does this make you excited? Yeah, me neither. I remember how I felt in the days leading up to my SAT exam. And that, that was only going to affect the outcome potentially of the college I might attend. The outcome of this will affect our eternal trajectory. The stakes could not be any higher. But, I used to actually help people prepare for the SAT. the best way to prepare for an exam, particularly one you're not exactly thrilled about, is to know what's coming so that you will not be surprised when it happens. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to go back through these five verses that we just read, and we are going to begin to try to discern what's that going to be like, and how do we prepare ourselves today for something that is coming could be at the end of the day. It could be, you know, a, a week away. It could be a decade away. I have no idea. But one day it will come for every single one of us. Let's prepare our hearts today for that. Verse 11. So I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The very, one of the first things I remember from our study of Revelation is that throne room scene in in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Remember with the Father seated upon the throne and Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, who it looks like the Lamb that has been slain in the center of the throne. And upon Jesus is the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The triune God is present. And throughout Revelation, the throne has been the dominant image Much of what we read about in Revelation revolves around the throne room of God, which is the control center of of the cosmos. It's where decisions that have an effect on our world happen. And there is one who sits upon the throne in control, even if sometimes it doesn't seem like that's the case. And that's good news. So all throughout Revelation, we've had seven throne room scenes, the first being in four and five, But again and again and again, we are reminded that the throne is the center of everything, and everything that we're reading about revolves around it. And now we come to the final throne room scene, and there is one who is seated upon this great white judgment throne, which begs the question, well, who is it? Is that the Father or is that Jesus? And John here never tells us who's sitting on the throne. 
But thankfully, we don't have to just guess because there's plenty of scriptures that points us in the right direction. For instance, in Acts chapter 17, Paul is having a conversation with some Greek philosophers. And he says this. He says, God will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. Who's he talking about? Jesus, okay? But we don't have to take that as the final word for it because Jesus himself talked about the role that he would play. Can we throw that up there? Yes, no, maybe so? That's all right, I got it right here. There we go. John 5, 22. He says, the Father judges no one. And in case you want to know who's talking, this is Jesus talking. The Father judges no one. But he has entrusted all judgment to the Son. So who's sitting on the throne? Jesus. In this moment, it is Jesus sitting on the throne. But remember, he's not just making decisions for himself arbitrarily. Jesus says, I don't, the judgment I pass, I only judge the way the Father does. He is the one who is representing the Father in this great judgment. But it is Jesus sitting upon the throne. So I saw a great white throne and him who was seated upon it. And the earth and the heavens fled from his presence. There was no place for them. I think this happens for two reasons. First, it's almost like the, the, the aperture of the camera is just zooming in on the throne. So all of the other stuff that we typically see, the earth and the heavens, kind of goes out of focus and disappears. So that's one thing that happens is the focus of John changes to the throne. But secondly, and I think just as importantly, the heavens and the earth run from the throne because they have been sullied by sin, corrupted to the point where they cannot stand in the presence of the holy, 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 righteous one that sits upon the throne. And so they flee. Like darkness flees from the light. You and I, however, don't have that same luxury. As unholy and as corrupted by sin as we happen to find ourselves, we don't get to flee. We will have to stand and give an account. So the earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. You know what this tells me? Everybody. Doesn't matter how wealthy, how influential, how well connected, how famous you are. It does not matter. You can't buy your way out of this. You can't talk your way through it. You're not important enough to get a hall pass on this one. But also, it doesn't matter how seemingly insignificant in the world you happen to find yourself. No one will be overlooked in this. The great and the small all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And books were opened. Not just one book. Books I suspect that there might be a book on every single one of us. Biographies are not just written about the rich and the famous. You and I <clears throat> have a ledger. 
a biography that is being written of our lives. And this isn't just containing the big high points of our life, the things that we accomplish, the, the letters that we get after our name because of our education or our big victories and our, and our worst mistakes. In this book, is recorded everything you have done in public, everything you have done in private, everything you have spoken on social media, everything you've thought in the inner recesses of your own mind. Even your motives are exposed and recorded in this book. You don't have to take my word for it. Jesus himself talks about what's in there. He says in Luke chapter 12, there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed Nothing hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in the inner room shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. So the dead were judged according to what they had done, according to what was written in those books. Wait a minute, Eric. Hold on a second. Stop. That sounds a whole heck of a lot like we're saved by our actions. And I thought that you've said before that we're saved by faith, not by works. So what gives? Are we saved by our works or are we saved by our actions? Because if, if we're judged according to what's written in that book, it suggests that we're saved by works. And so let me be really clear here. We are saved according to faith. But one of the things that we've done in our culture, one of the things we've done in the modern church, is we have taken belief and behavior and divorced the two. As if our beliefs stand completely separate from the way we behave. And I got news for you. Our behavior flows out of our beliefs. Our behavior exposes what we really believe. Our behavior, our actions reveal our values. They reveal what we actually believe in the inner recesses. Because I'll tell you what, talk is cheap. Our actions speak far more loudly than our words. And I'm not just speaking for myself. Paul is probably the strongest proponent for being saved by grace alone, apart from works. Would you agree? Paul is the one who is constantly reminding us, it is by faith you have, it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, not by works, so that nobody can boast. We, we hold this idea of being saved alone by faith on his kind of words, but Paul is also the one who said these words. The same person who wrote that wrote this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us might receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Oh, okay, okay. So faith or works, which one are we saved by? We are saved by faith. I am not saying anything to the contrary of that. But our actions flow out of our faith. Out of our faith comes the fruit of our life. And this is something that Jesus made explicit. In fact, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this. 
you will know what a person truly believes by the fruit their lives produce. There he's talking about false prophets who will weasel their way into the church and say lots of things. He goes, hey, hold on a second. You'll know them by the fruit their lives produce. You want to know what somebody really believes? Look at the way they live their life. So we are saved by faith. Our actions are not a prerequisite to being saved. You could walk in here today having had no interest in Jesus whatsoever, having made horrific choices all the way up until you got here. You might have even California rolled through the stop sign on the way in and almost taken out somebody in the crosswalk. You can't do anything to save yourself. But my suggestion is that the outflow of placing your faith in Jesus is it will have some impact on us because when we say yes to Jesus, the Holy Spirit is imparted to us and he begins to clean house and there is an impact on the way we live our life. Jesus' half-brother James put it this way. Faith by itself, if it isn't accompanied by actions is dead. Simply saying, I believe in Jesus, but living as if you don't believe in Jesus is going to cause your faith statement to be suspect. And by the way, I'm not the person who's going to make the determination. I'm not. Jesus is. Let me, let me just give you an illustration to drive this point home. Imagine for a moment you're feeling kind of crummy. It's been lingering for a while, so you finally make an appointment with the absolute best doctor in the area. You have, she has such glowing recommendations that you're like, she's the one I have to see because she's the one who can do something about this. So you make the appointment. You finally, there's a cancellation. You get in way sooner than you thought you would be able to. And as you're sitting in the doctor's waiting room, you look at the receptionist and you go, I am so grateful you guys were able to squeeze me in because I hear that she is the absolute best. I totally trust her. And the receptionist is like, yeah, she really is. So you finally get in to see the doctor and you describe all of the maladies that you've been dealing with, all of the stuff that's going on. She says, okay, I, I know exactly what's going on with you. Here is my prescription. I want you to walk one mile every day. And I want you to stop drinking caffeine, and I want you to take three of these pills every night. And I want you to do this for a month, and then I want you to come back and see me. And you take your prescription, and you walk out, and you are feeling so hopeful. You're already feeling better because you know it's going to have an effect on you. And as you walk out, you look at the receptionist and goes, oh, my goodness, I'm so excited. I totally trust that, pro uh, that pr the prescription. I'm so excited. And you go home. The next day, you wake up. And you're like, I need to walk. So you start walking, and it's kind of tiring, and it's kind of cold out, and you're not really fully awake. You didn't get your coffee and so you walk half a mile. And you go, ah, that's good enough, right? I know my body more than she knows my body. You go to work later that day. And you're starting to get a headache from the caffeine withdrawals. And you're like, ah, I'll just have one Coke. I'll just make it a Diet Coke. No sugar. Later that night, you go and you open the pill bottle and you pull out the first pill and you go, holy moly, that thing's massive. Tell you what, I'm going to have two of them. Because those are really, really big and they're hard to swallow. You do that the first day. 
You do it the second day. Walk half a mile. Drink one Diet Coke. Only take two of the pills. And you do that for about the whole month until the night before you're going to go see her. You walk three quarters of a mile and you take all three pills. The next morning you're sitting in the doctor's office and she says, so how are you feeling? Like, ah, all right. Not that great. She's like, oh, really? That's, that's surprising. I really felt like I knew what was going on with you. And well, you've been doing what I told you to do, right? Do? Yeah, do. Do what? Like doing what I told you to do. Oh, have, you, have you been walking a mile a day? Well, sort of. What do you mean sort of? Well, I've been walking half a mile a day, but yesterday I walked three quarters of a mile. But I told you to walk a full mile. Yeah, I know. All right, well, have you been avoiding caffeine? Well, sort of. What do you mean, sort of? Well, I've, been, I've only been drinking, I've limited myself to one Diet Coke and always before noon so that it won't affect my sleep. But I said, no caffeine. Yeah, I know. Listen, do you actually trust me? Oh, I totally trust you. You're the best doctor in the area. Okay. Well, then have you been taking all the pills that I prescribed you? Well, sort of. What do you mean by sort of? Well, I've been taking two. You obviously don't trust me. Doc, what are you talking about? How can you say I don't trust you? You don't know what's in my heart. Oh, really? If you really trusted me, you would do what I said. Jesus said exactly the same thing. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Again, there was a group of people that were kind of following him, clinging on to him, and he says, listen, if you are my disciples, then you'll do what I say. Then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In other words, we will know, we can know what we actually believe based upon the fruit of our life. It is the outflow. It's not the prerequisite. You don't have to do lots of good things to earn grace. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a gift. But our response to grace begins to look like actions. Books were opened, and the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Not because... We are saved by our works, but because our actions reveal the true state of our heart. Now, thankfully, <sighs> no, I should say this. I, I don't even want to imagine what the book about my life would look like. I don't even want to imagine it. I mean, if you saw it, I think what you would see is page after page after page of moments of doubt. Page after page after page of actions where my actions almost said the exact opposite of what my lips would say in front of you right now about my belief. Page after page after page of things I've done because I was hurting, and it was a way of anesthetizing myself. You know, on second thought, I don't want you to see what's in that book. 
But my guess is that my book probably looks very similar to whatever book is written on your life. Page after page after page. John, the guy who wrote Revelation, because he was seeing these things, also wrote this in his first letter, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. He says this, if we say we have, not sin, or we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Because every single one of us has sinned. Every single one of us has fallen short of the righteous standard by which we will be judged. And let me just point out, the righteous standard is not the people around us. The righteous standard is Christ. And by that standard, none of us can stand before the judgment seat of Christ and say, I deserve to get into heaven. I deserve to spend eternity with you. I deserve to rule alongside of you in the new Jerusalem. None of us. Now, thankfully... John didn't stop on that very depressing note. He continued in the very next verse to say this, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and purify us of all unrighteousness. Yes, we've all sinned. But if we acknowledge that sin before God, he deals with it. And so if you were to see the book on my life, yes, there would be pages and pages and pages of things that I would cringe for you to know are in there. But on every single page, there would be words written across them, forgiven. It is finished, paid in full. There would be Smudge marks, almost looks like an indelible marker has been written across these things, crossing them out. But the, the color that God chooses to mark them out is interesting. He doesn't use a black Sharpie. His is red, blood red, because it's blood itself that is used to wipe all of those sins out of the biography of my life. And the blood comes from the one who sits upon the throne in judgment of each of us. It is his blood. This reminds me of something that Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, one of the most powerful moments in all of Scripture. He said this, he, speaking of the Messiah, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. And the punishment that brought us peace was placed upon him. By his wounds, we are healed. Guys, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord placed upon him the punishment and the sins of all of us. That is both the amazing and the ridiculousness of the gospel. And there's a reason why people reject the gospel. It's because it seems too good to be true. It seems unfair. We live in a culture that says you can be a self-made man or woman. You can do it yourself. You can do it your way. The gospel says we can't. But it also says that we don't have to. 
The gospel says that we will one day stand in front of the holy, holy, holy judge upon his white throne. And we will have to give an accounting for our life. And he is a just judge, meaning he will not turn a blind eye to anything. When we open the book on your life, when we open the book on my life, everything is in there. Nothing is hidden. He has all of the evidence he needs to declare us rightfully guilty and deserving of eternal separation from him in the lake of burning fire where the unholy trinity is. But he's not just a just judge. He is also a loving savior. And so no sooner has he declared us to be guilty than he stands up and he takes off his judge's robe and he comes out off of the the judge's stand, off of the throne, and he walks down to us and he looks us right in the eye. And he says, you might be guilty, but I have already paid the penalty for your guilt. And I bear the marks in my hands and my feet and on my side. It is my blood that has cleansed you so that those things written in that book no longer define you and no longer dictate where you go. How do I know? Because the books on our life are not the only books, or are not the only, yeah, they're not the only books that are a part of the evidence. There's one more book we need to look at, and it is without a doubt the most important book. Go back to verse 12. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. This is the Lamb's book of life. You might have heard of it. In that book is recorded the things that Jesus has done. In, in all the other books are recorded things we've done. In that book. It reminds us of what Jesus has done, and then it is page upon page upon page upon page of names, of image bearers of God, imperfect, fallible, rebellious followers of Jesus who stumblingly placed their faith in him and stumblingly followed him and did not give in to the pressures to conform of the world around them like so many others did. And in the face of their own imperfection, they kept their eyes focused on his perfection and said, you're my Lord, you're my Savior, you are my only hope. Jump down to verse 15. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. The inverse of that is that anybody's name who was written in that book of life gets to spend eternity with Jesus irrespective of what is written in their own biography. One day you and I will stand before our holy, righteous Savior as he sits upon the judgment seat and we will need to give an accounting for our life. And he may ask us, why 
should I let you spend eternity with me? And if he were to ask me that question, I think I would probably say something like, I don't deserve to spend eternity with you. I'm guilty. Everything written in that book I've done, you know better than I. But I trust in you. And I believe that you died for me. And I believe that you wrote my name in your book. And by faith, I believe that he will look me square in the eye and says, yes, I did. And he will take the book of life and he will place it over on top of the book about my life. And he will say, now come spend eternity with you and me. And in that moment, I will fall at his feet in a puddle of relief and gratitude and worship. That's all I can do. If you're sitting here this morning, I'm going to invite Sophie to come back up, but if you are sitting here this morning and you believe that you'll spend eternity with God because you're a good person, I've got news for you. You're not, and neither am I. Not a single one of us is good enough to be able to point to our own biography and say, see, I deserve it. If I am given the option between making my case on my own merit based upon what is written in the book of my life or making my case based upon what Jesus did as written in the book of, of the Lamb, I'm taking option number two because there is no hope for option number one. And I would suggest, as strongly as I can suggest anything, that you take option number two as well. Because no one is righteous. No, not one. But thankfully, we serve a God who is. And we have a Lord and a Savior who loved us so much that he was unwilling to let our own rebelliousness be the last word. And that's why he went to the cross. That's why he willingly took our punishment upon himself. Not because he lost. Not because the enemy won. Not because Rome was stronger than him. But because that is why he came. To give his life for ours. So that we could have our life back and spend eternity with him. And so if you have been trying to earn the right to be called a son or daughter of God. Stop trying. You can't do it. Again, we are not saved by our efforts, by our actions, by our works. We are saved by grace alone through faith in Jesus so that none of us can boast. But we are saved for good works. And our actions become the fruit of our faith. And this morning, I would be missing a ridiculously obvious opportunity if I didn't say to you in here, and I know many of you are following Jesus, and perhaps there's some time during this response time where you need to take a good hard look inside of yourself and say, is there any area of my life I haven't thrown open the curtains and let the light of truth shine into me to expose it? And if I see it, to confess it. If we confess our sins, he is just and, and, and righteous and he will forgive them. The shadow areas, those are the play areas of the enemy. That's where he has his power. And when we reveal those things, it exposes it. 
and the shame and the guilt dies in the light. Expose it to the light. Trust the divine physician. He's even better than any doctor you've ever been to and his prognosis is faith. His prescription is faith. Place your faith in me. Take one step in following me. I know you're going to stumble, but choose to follow me anyway. And that first step simply looks like a prayer of acceptance. Not a, not a prayer of earning or making a case, a prayer of accepting a gift, and that gift is grace. Jesus gave his life for you. It's already been paid for. You simply need to accept that gift. And it looks simply like saying, Jesus, I need you. And in fact, I'm just going to pray this right now. And if this is the, the true intent of your heart, then I invite you to pray it alongside of me, whether this is the first time or the hundredth time, or Merv, maybe the 300th time. Pray it with me. Jesus, I need you. I know I'm imperfect. I know I've screwed up. I know I don't deserve to spend eternity with you. But I'm so grateful that you love me anyway. I'm so grateful you don't give up on me. And I choose to follow you as my Lord. I choose to accept your sacrifice because you are my Savior. Holy Spirit, come into me Refill me fresh. Blow through the caverns of my heart and, it, and just get rid of anything that's not of you. Fill me up so that I can better reflect your heart through the fruit that my life produces. Jesus, in your holy name, amen. Let's worship together as family.
echoing for me and it's a song I think all of us know whether we have the words or not and that's Amazing Grace and I would love to just sing the opening frame of that whether or not we have an accompaniment let's just sing these words that, that celebrate the gift of grace that Jesus has lavished upon us you want to start us? thank you Amazing Grace how sweet resonating for me. We have an enemy who loves to take all of the things written in your, the biography of your life that you're most ashamed of and throw them in our face and say, these things define you. You better hide them down deep because if anybody knew they were in there, they'd be disgusted. They would be shocked you even bothered to walk in here this morning. We have a God who does not act like that. We have a God who loves us. And it might seem counterintuitive that he would have a biography of our life that he would go through on the day we stand before him. 
But here's the, the power of this song, written by a man who knew how flawed he was. It's hard to really appreciate how amazing grace is until we realize just how wretched we really are. But in the face of our flaws, his grace shines ever brighter. So now may we imperfect sons and daughters of God praise Jesus for his amazing, unearned grace. Let's sing it again. God, I am so grateful for the reminder that you take wretches and you turn them into sons and daughters. You take prodigals that are covered in the filth of our mistakes and our open rebellion. And you don't hold your arms folded over your chest and watch us with a shaking head. No, you run to us and you throw your arms around us and you celebrate every time a prodigal comes home. You don't stop there. You take off the filthy robes that are just caked in our mistakes and you replace it with a clean white robe and then you throw a party. That is what we celebrate today. That is the kind of people we get to be as we go out of here, is a people who are prodigals, who are now fully declared sons and daughters by a father who loves us and never stopped loving us, even though we stopped loving ourselves a long time ago. And we are sons and daughters for whom our father celebrates over us. And we get to now go out as fully embraced family members to be ambassadors of hope into a world that is pretty stinking hopeless. Holy Spirit, go with us. Give us the eyes to recognize opportunities. Help yourself to us as we join you in reflecting the hope of this amazing grace. Jesus, we pray these things in your holy name. Amen. I hope to get to spend time with many of you at the park in a little bit. Ladies, remember we have the, the, the breakfast next Saturday. 
grab some of those invitations for Easter. And if you are new here, we don't ask that you give anything. Those who are going to give, you can give in the white boxes. We just ask that you let us know you were here so that we can follow up with you and help you get plugged in. Because the best of what Lighthouse has to offer doesn't take place on Sunday morning. It's during the week. Have a wonderful week. Now go be the church.